Problem solvers, pioneers, but more importantly, data nerds. That's how Sumo Logic describes itself, and well, it's fitting. Rooted in big data and security, Sumo Logic is among the most powerful machine data analytics services in the world. But to reach the pinnacle of any industry, it requires a culture that strives to be the best. There's a lot of discomfort in this type of a culture because in order to really be willing to disrupt yourself so that you don't get disrupted by somebody else, you have to empower and enable people inside of your company to challenge decisions, to take risks, to take accountability for those risks. But it has to be a culture that relies on transparency, collaboration, risk, and essentially distributed decision-making. Bruno Kurdick is the founding vice president of product and strategy for Sumo Logic. And on this episode of IT Visionaries, Bruno delves into how the Sumo Logic platform operates, why the pace of change in technology industry continues to keep the team on their toes, and why more and more enterprises are utilizing multi-cloud approaches. Plus, Bruno dives into what a successful technology company culture looks like and how it should operate and why every voice matters, no matter where you sit in the company hierarchy. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the founding VP of strategy and solutions at Sumo Logic, Bruno Kurdick. Bruno, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. All of our guests, we ask you to do the same thing to get us kickstarted. Tell us what Sumo Logic is. And I want you to be specific because, of course, there are actually quite a bit of applications that use the word Sumo in them. We have AppSumo. I think there's one called Just Sumo. What is Sumo Logic? Sumo Logic is a continuous intelligence platform, which is a mouthful itself, but let me kind of explain what that is. Continuous intelligence platform is a, a new category of software that helps enterprises collect all of their real-time telemetry information from their applications, infrastructure, their you know technology stacks, as they sort of serve their customers digitally, all of these technology generates data that they need to analyze and understand in order to improve how well they operate that infrastructure, how secure that infrastructure and applications are, to improve understanding of their own business, their customers. So essentially, it's a real-time data analytics platform that collects special kind of data, mostly generated by the IT and digital infrastructure that businesses use. So specifically, what data points is it capturing and monitoring? So um, also, one thing to add to that is that we are a, a cloud-native platform, and the types of data that we collect is sort of generally called uh, machine data. And the machine data is an umbrella term that describes things like log data from your applications and infrastructure, metrics data, so things that tell you your latencies, your consumption, CPU, memory, IO, things like that. Trace data, uh, so transaction information, understanding how are your transactions executing and where there might be errors or slow transactions and things like that. And then all kinds of events and metadata that help you describe all of this other data and understand it in context. So back when, just to give our audience a framework for anyone who's not as familiar with this use case or this the purpose of this application, when we were developing software 
this was back in 2014, we developed a social media management system that required data connections between Facebook and LinkedIn and all the other social media platforms, as well as a data pool that we're pulling into a database, mm -hmm. which our application could then query so that you could, our customers could ask questions like, what do people wish Oreos paired with besides milk? And it required all this data from all these different places. Now we had systems in place. It wasn't sumo logic, but we had systems in place that were constantly monitoring this and would, would tell us whether it was functioning, not functioning, whether it was slow. And then from there, our engineers and such, they could repair things if they saw something incorrect. Is that the, still the number one use case for tracking all these data points or has software development, has that changed where people are actually using this information to do other things? Because I I know the, the primary use case or the use case I'm most familiar with is the monitoring of things going right or wrong. I didn't know if you, there were any new use cases emerging, which, because to your point, the data sources that are created now are significantly more than, you know, back when I was doing this across just a couple applications. Yeah, no, I think it's evolved quite a bit uh, since that time uh, in a couple of different ways. Number one, the use cases for this type of data have gone uh, significantly beyond just using it for operational visibility and monitoring, right? So that is obviously still a core use case because, you know, if you're a digital business, your application and services must be reliable. They must perform, they must be available, they must be secure. And so that's still a core use case for all digital businesses, making sure that you, know, you quickly repair things that are broken, you understand quality of service, you constantly improve it, and that can help differentiate you in your business, right? But other use cases also have sort of evolved. And, and security has been a core use case as well in the space, right? And especially now that the dev development and operation security are kind of breaking the boundaries between those teams and are moving into a DevSecOps kind of an operating model, right? The same data is used also for security and compliance. So now you're looking at that same data with a different lens with, by a different persona to make sure that the application is not just reliable and, and available, but it is also compliant, that it is secure, that it's protecting customers' data, that it's not leaking information where it shouldn't be and things like that, right? And then beyond that, what's really interesting, what's, what has evolved is this data, because it is essentially, the digital service is essentially becoming a new interface between a business and its customers. All of this data that's generated by these applications when they run and interface with customers carry tremendous amount of very useful information to understand your business, right? To be able to tell how many users are using uh, this capability, what kind of products are being popular, how well is my application working in this region, in that region, how is the new feature that we shipped operating? Is it discoverable? Is it usable? Are people liking it? Things like that. All of this sort of agile business intelligence information is also available and digital businesses are more and more leveraging it this way in order to create better experience, right? To, to build better products and services so they can further differentiate in their market, right? And so th those are the core of use cases that have grown out of just the IT use case. However, not only that has changed, it's also changed from what you, you call it monitoring, right? Yeah. Monitoring is the first thing you do, but we are now in this realm of observability where the much deeper practice of being able to not just monitor, but detect issues, diagnose them, troubleshoot them all in one platform. And if you have it all in one platform through this construct or concept of observability, you have a much faster return or turnaround time to go from a signal that something is wrong to going back to your healthy application performing as you want it to be. Where are you going to be doing these observations? I'm curious because when you say that, it reminds me of 
let's use a, a product maybe that a lot of our listeners know, like load balancing, right? Mm-hmm. Load balancing is simply an application or service that constantly recognizes traffic. It sees that too much traffic is going to server one and goes sends it to server two. Yeah. So it's automatically solving that problem in real time. What are you seeing be- beyond that use case of what people are relying on Sumo Logic to do? Uh, routing traffic is one thing, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it sounds like it's almost solving solving problems. Like I'm trying to understand what that means. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so let's let's take an example with load balancer, right? A common common problem can can happen if you let's say you have a load balancer in front of an application which is routing, you know, that, that data to to a couple of several clusters, right, of microservices. Those microservices might be talking to some databases behind the scenes, right, to, to read and write information from. And as you're kind of taking all of this telemetry from, from your load balancer, from your instances, from your databases, from your own code running on those instances, whether it be running on Kubernetes in containers or running on, you know, just, you know, vanilla instances, as you're looking at the whole system, you could have an issue, right? You could have a, you know, um, a load balancer misbehave and not route traffic effectively, which would result in downstream from the load balancer overloading one of the clusters, right? And possibly overloading one of the databases. Or it could be that a database is overloaded and you need to actually understand why that is so that you can potentially change the configuration of your load balancer to route to a different cluster or to auto scale the instances that are behind those load balancers in order to, you know, accept the capacity. So you, you essentially are taking all of this information from each layer of the stack of your application to understand what's happening, to then figure out where is the issue originating from, which is the diagnostic step. And the last step is to actually be able to go into typically logs, right? Because they typically are the source of truth to actually understand why is the problem occurring and how do you fix it, right? And so that's, and and problem can be anywhere up and down the stream, and that's why you need the entire stack to be able to understand where it's actually happening and, and how to fix it. Is that where Sumo Logic yourself, you're evolving the product to, is like to go into logs and actually reveal to me? Because there's one other step there, which is I have to understand what the logs say or do my own research, right? So I always think to myself, like, okay, that's nice that it's logged. That's no different from giving me a giant Excel sheet. I mean, I need, I need in, more insight to that, or else it's going to take me maybe too much time to figure this out. Great question. So, so we, we started as a logging product, right? We started as, as a product that helped you understand logs. So that's actually our core strength is being able to kind of take unstructured log data, you know, instead of giving you a dump, like a grep, right? You, you talk about like dump it into Excel and then go perusing. That's never going to really help you solve the problem <laughs> effectively, right? So no, it's not. we built the practice of applying advanced analytics in our data. And so we don't only consume logs, we consume metrics and logs and traces to help you first detect issues and then navigate to those issues and then, and then resolve them. But the crux of your question is, how do you help me go from that raw data that has potentially millions of records of unstructured logs and actually figure out what the root cause is, right? So that's where the analytics kick in. So we, we number one, package our products with a lot of out-of-the-box analytics, right? We talked about load balancers. So we have out-of-the-box analytics for a slew of load balancers in market from F5 to AWS and others, you know, databases, you know, operating systems, application components, queuing system, web servers, app servers. And essentially, we take all of that unstructured data and boil it into insights so that you are looking at something and we're telling you, this is where your problem is, right? And our machine learning can unpack all of this data. It can find things like, you know, needles in a haystack. Hey, you just shipped some new code to production, and this is a brand new pattern of an event that we're detecting, right? 
more likely than not, it has something to do with what's happening to your application, right? So we can find these needles in the haystack and help users kind of jumpstart this analysis without them having to uh, understand every log line that's being generated by this. Now, one of the things that's also happening now in, like you said, digital businesses, of which every business in the world is now a digital business. Everyone's got some type of digital interface. Yeah. One of the things that's happening is you see more rapid development and more ability for the actual developers to be able to you know, use products like Ansible, Terraform. They're spinning up their own cloud services to just do tests of micro applications that are just branches, if you will, off of the existing core code base. One of the things I always wonder about a product like yours is whose job is it to plug in all the things to monitor? Because I think you'd agree that in development teams, people are constantly spinning up new resources that you know, if they don't do a great job, it could potentially be like its own independent branches, yeah. you know, servicing the primary code base. But if you're not now, now you're not plugged into that. So can you identify, like, are you actually able to identify like, hey, data's flowing out of this from one place to another. This person has spun up a resource that's not part of the existing log base or, or the, the infrastructure. It's absolutely a fantastic question, right? As we move to move more to sort of high speed software development, continuous delivery, right? Where stuff appears in production all the time, right? And how do you control what's in production? How do you make sure it's managed, it's protected, it's secured, it's, it's, you've got visibility into it? So lots of methodologies there, right? A lot of our customers actually love to use Sumo in their pre-production process, right? But they, we've actually just recently delivered something called a software development optimization solution, which actually collects data from all the software development tools like Jira and GitHub and, and CI CD tools and Jenkins and the systems of the world, and then leverages the Dora Metrics methodology, which is a center for DevOps research, a company acquired by Google, which essentially provides a methodology of managing your software development quality, right? Really measuring in two ways. One, how, how agile are you? How, what's your software development velocity? And second is, what's your quality that you're pushing into production, right? And so we have the solution that looks at the pre-production part, which if used in a pre-production part now gives you a visibility into actually what's going into production. Second is a lot of our customers actually prefer to, to deploy Sumo using their deployment tools. So what they do is they build into their deploying methodology, deploying appropriate collection mechanisms that as soon as something is pushed into production, it is immediately part of the product, it's immediately part of the observability platform and immediately starts emitting data into the observability platform. So you can never actually miss anything. And the last but not least, what we do with all core of our core solutions, like we have an AWS observability solution, we have a Kubernetes observability solution. We actually built into our deployment an instrumentation and auto discovery methodology that basically once you deploy Sumo into your Kubernetes cluster, we see everything in it. So if new piece of code, new, new cluster, new node, new container appears, we know, we see it, it's automatically instrumented and it appears into your observability, in your observability platform automatically so that, so that you don't get into that situation where you miss something and it is not managed. Now, how often is that a reason why new, let's say CIOs, CTOs, whatever it may be, probably mostly CTOs, when they're talking to Sumo about implementing your your services into their core business, how often are you there talking to them? And how often are those customers talking about loss of 
insight or loss of ability to see across the whole dynamic ecosphere of what's being developed under their roof. Because I know, for example, when we worked, well, shoot, we work with our existing customers. We know that people don't even know like how many brands they own, let alone how many instances, clusters, clouds, like they don't know where they are. They just legitimately don't know where they are. And I'm sure when you sit down and talk to them about this, they're like, oh, this is, this is what I need. But I didn't know what is it that people come to you most for? Like, what is the main problem other companies are coming to you with that they looked for you to solve? Yeah, great. Great question. So three or four categories there. First one is what they want to solve. A lot of companies are sort of in the thrust of this cloud migration, right? They're digitizing and they're moving to the cloud. And what they don't want to do is they don't want to bring their old on-prem, old school tools to the cloud. Because when you make a mental model shift, to consume as a service, star, star as a service, right? Then you start thinking about how do I consume my tooling as a service as well, right? They start thinking about, I don't want to install my old school open source monitoring tool in the cloud and manage it myself. I want a cloud native management monitoring observability tool, right? So, so as they move their workloads to the cloud, they're using different technologies, using different techniques, they're looking for different tools. So that's one of the use cases. Second use case is when they're moving to re-architect their applications, right? So they're moving from a monolithic three-tier architectures to move to the cloud. They're looking to sort of create more agility, auto-scaling, and things like that. They're also looking for technologies that are native and really want to integrate into those stacks, like serverless functions, Kubernetes clusters, managed or unmanaged, or, or cloud infrastructure as a service technologies, which is where we are really, really strong, right? So, so they come to us for those. And then, you know, as they are as you know, for the ones that are kind of in the cloud already that have developed that microservices type application architecture running in the cloud, what they are looking right now is they're looking for tool consolidation. You know, rewind three or four years, it used to be best of breed world, right? Yeah. Oh, I've got this monitoring tool, I've got this logging tool, I've got this APM tool, this tracing tool, this whatever, right? Today, they're looking to consolidate because they want to make it easier for their teams to consume the tools and they want to shorten the cycle of how you actually figure out when something is wrong to how quickly you can resolve it. And once you put everything into one platform, into a single tool, it's easier to learn. It's probably more cost-effective and it certainly accelerates your troubleshooting process. And so a lot of those companies that that have the methodology to operate in the cloud, that understand microservices are now trying to squeeze that time, that incident time from start to, to end. And they're using you know, tool consolidation as a method to get there. And that's the conversation we have with them. And it's fascinating. This cycle of software development has not changed since, you know, technology started, which is, you know, specialization, consolidation, then there's going to be a new wave of specialization. So then proliferation, then there'll be another consolidation. And that never stops because there's always someone who's, someone's going to figure out something that works a little bit better. That's right. One of the things that's interesting though, that you already hinted at was what are the catalysts for this? And that is, we talk about it a lot with all of our guests, which is consumer demand. The constant desire by the customer to want a faster, better, more accurate experience. You know, when we completely take for granted what it takes, you know, when we think about right now ordering food, right? DoorDash, mm-hmm. how easy it is to just click a button and be like, here's a litany of SKUs, litany of things available to you, drivers, everything is just figured out in just a split second. What has that done, I guess? I mean, it sounds like it's certainly accelerated the pace of innovation, but then for you, what is it doing to you in your world in regards to this constant demand for faster results, faster product, faster output? Because you're the tool, it sounds like, that they're relying on that makes sure all their other tools are working, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they've got all these things going. 
like you said, services from different clouds on-prem. It doesn't matter where it is. You're saying you're going to be there and you're going to help them catch and possibly almost proactively fix if uh, if that is a problem. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's it's fascinating kind of, you know, what that is doing to the, how industry is changing because of the consumer demand. Like, you know, not only do I, like you described, have my phone and can do everything with a couple of clicks or a button, but if it isn't working, even for a little bit, I am pissed. <laughs> right. Right. I am. We're we're so entitled right now to have the thing that we want twenty four seven whenever we want at, at our at our fingertips, which is driving a really a whole new competitive dynamic within the digital businesses. Right. That's why our whole ethos at Sumo is not to talk about tools, not to talk about observability, not to talk about monitoring or logging. We talk about outcomes, and the outcome for us, primary outcome that we help our customers drive is customer experience through reliability, right? That is what they want. They don't care about the tool. They don't care how you do it. What they want is they want the best outcome for their own business. Because if you kind of think about, you know, the, what does it mean? If you have a more reliable digital service that competes in an industry, customers will flock to the ones that are most reliable. It's a differentiator, right? So, so the business wants to differentiate and what it does to us is we have to keep up with that demand, right? We always have to be on our tippy toes, figuring out what's the next thing. Like two years ago, three years ago, Kubernetes was this experimental technology that people were kind of like thinking about using in production. And like fast forward two years, it's like 50% of the market is running on Kubernetes. And, and we ended up having to really surgically think about where do we invest so that we continue to stay relevant because our customers are moving so fast that if we are even in a blink, don't pay attention to what they're doing, we could be marginalized and forgotten, right? And so we have to be super vigilant and making sure that we're supporting the latest and greatest technology stacks, capabilities, methodologies, so that our customers can do what they need to do. Otherwise, we are too slow and we don't want to be. So that use case you just used is something that I think about, certainly you have to think about because you're in the position of product and strategy, which is this concept that now, especially let's use developers, when a tool becomes that reliable, that efficient, it sounds like the actual mass adoption of that product is significant as well, which then, of course, means you have to adopt it as well. And I was wondering, because you've been in the game for software engineering for quite some time, how fast are timelines now shrinking when it comes to like the best product will win marketplaces? Because like you talked about with Kubernetes, right? It sounds like a uh, course of two years, 50% of adoption. Like that's... I mean, it's mind-boggling. It you think about like any any tool that launches. Like, what do you mean two? What do you mean fifty percent of the market is using a product like that? Didn't exist back then. It took forever for exactly. you know Windows to even get adopted. You were, only Windows. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like that's putting you on. Like you said, you it's putting you on your toes as well. I was wondering if you could kind of share with us what it looked like, because certainly you had to be able to forecast when you guys started Sumo. Like, hey, more and more people are going to develop tools. More and more tools are going to be used. More and more resources are going to appear. Someone needs to put it all together. So, I mean, I'm sure that was your starting hypothesis of why, why do you sumo? Yeah. But now the pace, what about the pace? Were you able to forecast the pace at which things now come together? You know, uh, we're always surprised by the pace, right? We, you know, we, you know, one of our core values in our culture, it's actually encoded as part of our culture, is that we are a learning culture. And the reason why we put one of these core pillars into our culture and encoded it there is because we want to make sure that we are always always, always reinventing ourselves because of the pace of technology change. And so we, you know, it feels like it's accelerating, honestly, right? 
you know, in the early days, 2010 and so, it was the cloud adoption was really accelerating. Amazon was really going fast. Now, when you look at just the three cloud providers, dominant cloud providers, GCP, Azure, and, and AWS, they offer more than 500 infrastructure services and platform services for enterprises to consume. And any one of those at any moment can become a really high dominant hit. Like for example, Lambda was the first serverless methodology yep. a few years ago. Now 30, 40% like, of our customers are using it. And how do we know? Well, we at some point we realized, well, we better start keeping track of this stuff, right? And five years ago, we began the creation of this thing called the Continuous Intelligence Report, which essentially looks at the underlying, the data flowing through our system and says, what technologies are being adopted? What technologies are growing? What te technologies are shrinking? Which architectures, which types of customers are using them? And so we actually have a whole program and we publish this report as you, as you are, I think, aware to be able to keep track of what's going on in this market and how people are adopting it so that we can be aware of it, number one, and also so we can publish it and help other people learn about what, what the sort of the most advanced enterprises are actually starting to pick up and, and take. A couple of things that, that came out over the last couple of years is that all of a sudden, multi-cloud adoption has exploded, right? 70% year-over-year growth in, in enterprises running workloads on multi-cloud, which, you know, three years ago, there was almost nobody. Now, it's like the fastest growing customer segment. So I was in a networking company back in 2018, and they were we were betting on multi-cloud adoption back then. One of the things that we learned back then is that when companies said multi-cloud, they didn't actually mean it, meaning they would have centralized database or centralized localization, and they would rely on maybe Google services, and they would pull that in, and then they'd send that data payload over to Azure and bring that back in. But the Azure to Google connection actually didn't exist. Right. But now my understanding, this is very, very so different. Like data is just literally like flowing between all the clouds and possibly local applications. Uh, we had the CTO of MailChimp on earlier. He says he not only uses GCP, but he still has his own data center and it's constantly talking. They're relying on, like you said, some of the GCP services, but not others and scaling the business in that regard. So when you think about like those endpoints, because in for those of you guys that don't know, these clouds, they charge based on egress. So every time the data moves out, like, it's constant, yes. <laughs> constant billing too, that's right. uh, adding to the cloud cost, but that's a different subject. So when we think about that, you talk about multi-cloud, is that where, how many enterprises or customers would you say are now actively moving payloads between clouds in order to get work done? Yeah, so a lot. That's the thing that's changed in the last couple of years. And so, you know, just to kind of complete that story, I've been really interested in multi-cloud over the last you know, five years, maybe longer. And my question to CTOs, CIOs has always been, so what's your cloud strategy? The cloud strategy quote, unquote, for the last six, seven years has been multi-cloud for sure. And I would ask why, and they would tell me, I like access to the best technology stack for whatever application I'm building. I want best coverage of the region that I'm operating. So if I'm operating in Europe, I want the best coverage of the cloud provider there or in North America, South America, whatever it is. And the third one is, usually most important one, I want leverage over the provider. Nobody wanted to be beholden to a single one. Everybody's afraid of what happened in the 90s with Microsoft and, and the whole lockup of the IT stack, right? And so, but nothing was happening in the data. Data wasn't showing that this strategy was actually being implemented. Right. And then two years ago, it just went through the roof. And we, we really wanted to understand what changed. Was there something else technologically that has changed that has enabled this, right? Because for years, nothing has happened. And then all of a sudden, 
it just started growing like crazy. And what we realized, and we looked at other cuts of data and try to correlate other data changes in, in, in technology, what we realized is that basically there is almost a perfect correlation between Kubernetes adoption and multi-cloud adoption. Customers running on-prem in their data centers, single digit likelihood of running Kubernetes. Customers running in a single cloud, 20% or so likelihood of running Kubernetes. In two clouds, 40 to 50%. In three clouds, more than 80% likelihood of running on Kubernetes. And so- Why is that? It seems to us, and this is what our customers are telling us, is that the Kubernetes is an insulation layer to make the applications more portable, right? Because you can spin up a Kubernetes cluster in GCP, in Azure, on-prem, in AWS, and just move your workload as you need to, right? You can spin up capacity in either one because Kubernetes basically separates you from the proprietary platform underneath, right? And essentially it has become, we believe, that technology that enables that sort of, those, those fluid applications that are running across multiple clouds and you can move workloads left and right and you get more control and all of that. We think that that's the answer. And, um, you know, it's true the way you describe it. Like the applications are now much more really multi-cloud versus I'm centralizing it here and then just reaching and asking for some questions from various services that are running in other clouds. No, that's interesting that you, you find 80% of, what did you say? I got to restate that fact. 80% of businesses running on multi-cloud are running it with Kubernetes. So Kubernetes has virtually unlocked this capability. Running on Kubernetes, that's right. Because of, like you said, it's portability. Yep. The ability to just say, this application works in each of the clouds because of this. Yep. Makes it easy. That's right. No refactoring, re-engineering. Re or at least, at least very minimal refactoring because it gives you those, you know, it is after all considered to be a data center operating system, right? Right. So... You know, this virtualizes the, the whole cloud operation model. Nothing gives more eye rolls than the word refactoring, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever developers like, I got to refactor, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a theme. <laughs> so when you think about it, wh where you where you sit today and these, seeing these things happen, you know, Sumo, Sumo Logic has this really unique place in for yourself and its place in regards to like, you already talked about the cycles of evolution of adoption of technologies, how you guys have to constantly monitor everything that's happening. You also have to make investments, as you suggested, make investments in the fastest growing things, which could potentially be growing at a rate of adoption. You know, last, you said Kubernetes, 50% of marketplace in less than two years. I bet you the next hot thing is going to happen even faster. So when you think about for yourself, how do you build what are your tips or strategies for building a culture of that hunger to learn? You talked about it's one of your core values, but you know, I'm thinking if I work with you, I always got to be doing my research too. Like there's never, there's never a point sounds like where we're not researching. We're not going to wait for the data and react to the data because you guys have to be in front of it, right? By the time you, for example, if you waited to 50% adoption, you'd be behind. Like you couldn't, like you can't, you can't operate like that. That's right. So how do you, how do you build that culture? And what are some of the tips that you have? Because clearly you guys have figured something out. It's a great question. Actually, there's a lot of discomfort in this type of a culture, right? Because in order to really, you know, be willing to disrupt yourself so that you don't get disrupted by somebody else, you have to empower and enable people inside of your company to challenge decisions, to take risks, to take accountability for those risks, right? But it has to be a culture that relies on transparency, collaboration, risk, and essentially distributed decision-making, right? And so as we kind of 
every every decision that we make, you know, can be challenged at any layer of the organization, right? So in part of why we have this, another pillar of our culture, there are five of them, is called transparency or, you know, a way for us to, when we make decisions, why we want to be transparent is because we want everybody who wants to understand the decision to know why we made it. And what that enables them to do is understand and ask questions about the underlying assumptions, bring in new ideas, challenge us, the decision makers or others, in order to make sure that we're making the right decisions, right? And so those can be very uncomfortable. It can be very uncomfortable to kind of constantly be challenged and constantly be kind of thinking about how do we disrupt ourselves? How do, how do we not get disrupted? And, you know, and we also, the third of the five pillars of our culture is uh, working with heart. So we look for passion. And that also works to help us get these decisions kind of made better because passionate people are going to be willing to step on the edge and challenge challenge decisions, right? And so all this is very uncomfortable because some people don't like to be challenged, but without allowing the smart people inside your company to challenge decisions and bring forward new decisions or new ideas, you'll never able to be able to evolve, right? And so that's how we do it. You know, some, some, some people don't love it, but we, we as a company love it and embrace it. There you go. So it's not really, I'm not challenging your knowledge. I'm just challenging a concept and, we're, and it's designed to open up discussion. Let me ask you a question. Do people push back on you? How often do people push back on you when you say, hey, we should do this? Oh my God, all the time. <laughs> all the time. All the time. You know, uh, sometimes it's mind-numbing, but it's great because, you know, I, uh, I personally enjoy a debate. My education that I've gone through and my early career was in companies where that was encouraged and, and I learned to internalize that as a as the right way to go, right? I don't like people sort of managing from the top and, and you know, essentially dictating decisions. So I get challenged all the time. I get challenged by everybody because I also welcome it and I ask for people to open up. Like I will, I will have people, you know, I will call on people who are in meetings that are quiet for whatever reason, because I want everybody's opinion to come forward, right? And sometimes you have to draw people out, especially if they come from different cultures, right? Who are not necessarily coming from cultures where you can challenge decisions or discuss or debate or bring new ideas, you sometimes have to bring them out. But once you bring them out and they see that the, the results and positive outcomes, you know, everybody kind of uh, adopts it and thrives on it. No, that's great because I, I always think about it when we read about how some of the great innovations at different companies, they often came from people, let's say closest to the problem or mm -hmm. just innovative different wings, uh, you know, even simple in the food industry, right? McDonald's, did, the Ray Kroc, the CEO did not invent the Big Mac. It came from a franchisee who said, hey, we should do this. And so I think the Happy Meal, same thing. So yeah. it's awesome always to hear leaders wanting to hear different ideas, especially in your field, because to your point, I mean, literally there's every day a new technology probably designed to help developers. Mm -hmm. Which, does it feel that way every day? You would say you hear something new? At least. <laughs> so what about internally and far as, as far as your decision-making, how do you choose what to invest time in? Because there is constantly something new, right? There's constantly something new. And you can't, you can't possibly investigate every single one. No, you can't. And it's, you have to recognize <laughs> trends, spot patterns. There's different people who are, you know, just by their job descriptions, tied to specific timeframes of decisions, right? You've got product managers who are thinking about features and capabilities, you know, you know, one to multiple quarters out. There's people like me who own strategy and, you know, I'm paid to really worry about what are we not doing today that's going to make us fail three years from now, right? So 
I'm thinking about the longer term implications of our decisions and what way we need to be thinking, what our true north needs to be. There are people who are operating in a very short term time frames, like our SCs and professional services people who are dealing with very much like the now problems with our customers. And so if you look at all of those types of timelines and decision making, and you spend enough time with your customers, you can kind of start spot trends and coalesce a strategy that, that both helps you solving the short-term problems and allows you to go long-term where you want to go without overweighting on either one. Because you can not do the short-term stuff because that's what your operating business depends on. And you can't ignore your long-term strategy because that's going to make you fail later. So you got to find this balance, right? And it's a non-trivial task, right? And, and uh, you've got the right people hopefully applied to each one of those timelines and those, those decision points. And then you work together to craft a long-term strategy. And it evolves, right? Changes based on what your customers look like, what they want, what changes in the market, and so on. And so when you think about that methodology that you just talked about in place, one of the things that, of course, happened in 2020 was the pandemic, which, of course, changed every business from many directions. So you're in long-term strategy. Were you forecasting global pandemic? <laughs> no, but uh, smarter people than I were. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when that started happening, I know we've talked to a bunch of CIO CTO leaders. They all talked about the demand for consumer-based services went up through the roof, right? Remote service applications, like it went through the roof. Of course, many companies were, let's say, not ready. And then they had to adapt very, very quickly. For you at Sumo Logic, were you, did it, did it surprise you? Were you able to, like, what happened to your business when all of a sudden all these different other companies that maybe were, let's say, developing slower? I don't know if that's really what was happening, but like, were they developing technology at a pace that they had to accelerate? I didn't know what you noticed. And then what did you guys have to do to accommodate for that? Great question. So, you know, we happen to be a little bit lucky in that regard because we have always operated as a highly distributed company, right? We have offices and location all over the world, our remote sales force. So we've always had the facilities for ourselves to work in a semi-remote fashion, right? Obviously, when the pandemic hit, we had to adapt even further because there was no offices anywhere. Everybody was working from home, you know. And the other the other benefit that we had is we were cloud native through and through. We Everything we ever used was either SaaS or infrastructure as a service. We owned no infrastructure. We owned no physical IT or of any kind, right? So we just we happened to be consuming the stuff that was available offline, online anyway. What happened to our customers was amazing, right? If you, you think about us as a, as a high-tech company, right? But many of our customers are traditional companies. And they were not used to operating in this model. They ran their own infrastructure, data centers, whatever, right? When they had to go home and work, they really struggled with like, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, you know, CIOs, our VPN capacity was insufficient. Yeah. You know, 10% of people were on VPN before now and hundred percent of them are, right. You know, you know, proxy, you have to manage your proxies differently, your load balancers, your VPN, your, your, all of these tools that, that happen to be accessed remotely, you know, 10% of the time now being accessed remotely hundred percent of the time. So they, they had to monitor their physical infrastructure, scale it, make sure that it's working you know, Zoom, people were using Zoom like we are today. And all of a sudden, they can't manage their Zoom capacity. There was Zoom bombing. They wanted to manage security. Over. So we actually, within the first two or three weeks of the pandemic, we actually heard from our customers and on a dime, we were able to turn around and create working from home solutions for our customers where they could manage 
their VPN, their proxy, their load balancers, their, their you know, remote uh, SSOs, all of that stuff in order to enable their workforces to operate remotely, uh, including par partnering with Zoom and others. And so, which was great that, that helped our customers do their business, you know, and we were able to quickly, quickly turn around and deliver those solutions. Was that it? Was that an all hands on deck kind of event where you're like, hey, we got to change our functions right now? Very much, <laughs> very much, very much, because our our customers were panicking, right? Okay, they were using us to manage their mission critical customer facing workloads, but when they all went home, they couldn't access the tools yeah. needed to manage. So we quickly needed to turn around and make sure that we can unblock them from that, right? And and it was really fascinating, and I was really proud of how how we executed. There were a couple of blogs out there if anybody's interested in reading about it of, of how we actually were able to accomplish that. And, and, you know, the team really stepped up and we got it done. That's awesome. Now, before we close, I, we always want to ask a couple questions about, you know, the back in the day as well. And I always got to ask because it's a very serious application, right? But why Sumo Logic? Because, you know, of course, your LinkedIn photo, you got the Sumo Fighter right there on your shoulder. What made you guys go down that route? Because it, because there are a lot of, I think you'd agree, there's actually quite a lot of, uh, let's say, consumer SaaS products that have the word Sumo in it. They're all like fun, like using marketing software. Uh, you guys are obviously heavy data analytics, uh, continuous intelligence improvement pro, uh, <laughs> software. It's a little bit different. Talk about the the decision tree on that name. I'm curious. How did you guys come across that name? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> so you actually used the word that in part describes what we like. You said heavy data. Yeah. <laughs> so we wanted a name that helped to some degree describe what we do. We wanted a name that if it was listed in a press release, some kind of a partner press release, we wanted a name that people will remember. You know, we, we wanted a name that would stand out. We wanted something that's that's recognizable. So in case you didn't know, Sumo is one of the most recognized words in any language around the world. I did not know that. Which is amazing. We didn't know this. Second, Sumo is big. Yeah. Powerful. Big data is what we do. Logic, Sumo logic, big logic right? Logic is analytics. We do big data analytics. So it to some degree describes what we do, right? We, it describes that we can handle massive amounts of data in a logical, smart, analytical way. And, you know, we just love the name. So we, we, we have actually tried on no, no, no fewer than two or three occasions to hire people from the outside to help us find a better name. We own so many domain names. You have no idea. Like <laughs> we own so many domain names. There will be amazing names for companies. And we could never convince ourselves to change it because we just fell in love with this and customers did. And there was something cultural about it and we just kept it. And we went, we went against the grain. We have been advised to change it. We didn't. And we think it was the right choice. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm sure in the early days, people like, hey, enterprises aren't going to take a startup that has Sumo in the name seriously. That's right. <laughs> yep. This is awesome. Well, Bruno, I want to thank you for sharing all the information about what you guys are up to. And now I'd like you to share a little bit more because it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Bruno, this is where we ask you questions outside of Sumo Logic so our audience can get to know you better. All right. So we just looked you up on LinkedIn, obviously. It looks like you've lived on the West Coast, East Coast, and a couple other different places. Tell us, where has been your favorite place to live? Uh, my favorite place to live is in California. I love, I love Northern California. I lived here, then I moved East, and then I had to come back here because I love it so much. So it's California. What is it about North, Northern California that you love so much? 
I'm an avid outdoors person. I go, I'm out in the woods, hiking, kayaking, skiing, snowshoeing, uh, whatever I can be out in the woods. And uh, this affords it in any season. So I love it here. There you go. By the way, we have a continuous pattern now of CIOs and CTOs on this show that are actually when they're not, you know, programming applications, they are outdoorsmen. So this is yep. you. You are part of the club now. So, what is your favorite hobby outside of work that nobody knows about? Is there any particular thing that you you always gravitate towards? Lots of hobbies, but I would say the one that's unusual is I brew beer and I make some wine. How's it taste? Pretty good, I think. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so you brew beer, you make your own wine. Have have you served it to other people or only like have. have you had it at family dinners? How what do how do people react to it? People like it, right? And it's uh it's still not I wouldn't call it a high-end professional wine. Beer is pretty good. Wine I'm still kind of growing up, but uh people like it. We drink it at home. All right. Well, listen, send me a bill. I'll I want to buy some and try it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How about for entertainment? Do you watch movies or TV shows or or do you read? How, what do you do for inter, just uh, general at-home entertainment? I consume a copious amount of audiobooks uh, of all kinds. I like fiction and nonfiction. So I, when I hike, I typically will be listening to audiobooks because I no longer have time to read by sitting at a, you know, at my bed or whatever. And then um, we do, we watch, and my wife and I enjoy watching various, you know, binge watching series on, on TV and so on. What's an audiobook you've listened to recently that you would recommend? Audiobook, recent audiobook. Oh, I've just listened to quite a few that are sort of pretty serious topics um, around sort of world events, uh, cyber uh, activities. So I listened to Edward Snowden's book. Oh, wow. Um, yep, that's a really good one. Also, Countdown to Zero Day. It's about the Stuxnet virus and how it operated. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight into kind of what's possible today with, with cyber warfare. Oh, that's pretty heavy. Curiously, do you think you leaned more towards uh, nonfiction rather than fiction? Depends. I go in bursts. So I'll, I'll usually consume, you know, five or 10 books that are fiction, and then I'll get bored and go into nonfiction. And I'll do the same for nonfiction. I usually don't go back and forth. I, I kind of get in one zone and do that and then come back and do another. Sounds totally good. I'm personally a fan of nonfiction just because I think like there are so many people and so many events like you just suggested that are just mind boggling. I always like learning about those kinds of things. But Bruno, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your life outside of work. And of course, sharing the big data, the sumo logic that you guys deploy. I've always thought uh, prior, prior to this conversation, I never really actually knew what you guys did before I did the homework. I always thought it was a marketing app because there's so many, there are so many, mar they, you got to talk to these marketing companies that keep taking your, your, your name. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Bruno, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure and uh, looking forward to meeting again. Awesome. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.